So before I go to the Inca Trail, I get injured and I say to him, I don't know if I can make this trip, but I'll try. And so I end up going. We get there, but I have knee sleeves, like weightlifter knee sleeves on because I'm afraid of my left knee giving out. So early in the morning on the second day of the Inca Trail is a place where you summit. Uh, it's called Dead Woman's Pass. It's like, yeah, like 12,000, 13,000 feet or something like that. It is the hardest day, they say, of the trail. I'm chewing a bunch of coca leaves, sprinting up this mountain practically because I'm like, I just want to make it because this is the hardest day. So literally, I get up the mountain so fast, it takes the rest of the team that I'm with another like hour and a half, two hours to meet me up there. So I get up there and I'm waiting and I'm just so happy I made it to the top. I just sit and I meditate and I just take it all in and it was a fantastic time. What ends up happening though is on the way down, I was going a little bit slower. And so I was really worried about my knee. We get to base camp and I, and I, I pass out from exhaustion. Wake up the next day and my jaw is locked shut. I couldn't open it. So I proceeded to be basically on a liquid diet for the rest of that trip. When I got home from the trip, I started seeing doctors and dentists and all these other crazy people to be able to figure out how to open my jaw again to the point where they were injecting like, I think ozone, O3 into my jaw to be able to release the inflammation and pressure that was building up, but they weren't treating the root cause, right? And so since they were treating the symptom, I didn't really get any relief. It didn't hurt as much, but I still couldn't really use my mouth that well. I end up discovering cannabis again. That's literally the start of that journey. Like many people who have a medical issue, they eventually have to figure out alternatives. Welcome to Lit Up Founders, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. For a large part of his early life, today's guest lived in the shadow of his very popular, but very different older brother. It wasn't until he found his passion for technology in high school, something he found immediate aptitude for, did he start to come into his own identity and gain the confidence to pursue his own path in life. Entering technology just post the dot-com bubble was humbling. From working on innovative projects to having to say yes to anything, even gig economy moving jobs, he did what it took to survive another day. Many years later, a stressful exit from a technology company he co-founded, coupled with a physically demanding high-altitude hiking trip, caused a lot of compound health issues to come to the surface. With traditional Western approaches not working, a podcast on the healing powers of cannabis piqued his interest our guest decided to revisit the plan. After a lot of exploration, coupled with his natural tendency to dive deep, he eventually found his cure. With his health on the mend, his exit complete, a lot of deep knowledge of the cannabis plant, a working product, a proven but undersupplied product category, and the funds to get it off the ground, the door was wide open for his next adventure in entrepreneurship. Please enjoy the founder's journey of Jason Raposa of Goodfields. I created Goodfeels because there was a huge gap in the market for products like a beverage. And the reason why I chose beverages, though, was because, stepping back a second, consumers primarily use cannabis with help to help with sleep, anxiety, and pain management. And traditional edibles feel like you're rolling the dice. They're totally unpredictable, right? You take an edible, you wait an hour, and you're like, am I high or am I not high, right? And so for us, 
the technology that allows beverages to happen happens to be technology that allows you to actually create really fast acting cannabinoids. And so that's why we entered this market was because we just, we, we were not, consumers aren't going to tolerate traditional edibles forever. They're not going to want to wait an hour and just, you know, figure, hopefully it, it works the right way. Right. But beverages on the other hand, like good feels are a natural form factor. And, the technology allows consumers to control the experience very precisely. In addition, though, the alcohol industry is also in a decline. And so consumers are seeking alternatives right now, and they're finding cannabis a likely candidate. So the reason why we started it ultimately is because we, it's like consumers are, uh, the traditional edibles, the way they're prepared right now are just unacceptable. And it just, it, they're problematic, right? You're rolling the dice every time you take a gummy or a chocolate without knowing any precise control dosing for your cannabis. Yep. What was the problem that you were trying to solve at the time? I know you're going through some health issues um, and sure. you're experimenting around with those things. So like, how did this like concept come about? The concept came about because I faced my own medical issues, right? So I was hiking in Peru on the Inca Trail. And I locked my jaw up through a ton of stress that was happening in my personal life, in addition to exerting myself, climbing up this giant mountain. And when I got home, I went to dentists and doctors to try to unlock my jaw because it was that was a liquid diet, basically. And so what I ended up doing was I was like, let me just try this cannabis thing all over again, right? Let's just see. It's been 20 plus years. I tried CBD and I was like, this is just snake oil. It doesn't work. But then when I tried it again, and I actually started smoking and vaping a little bit, but also trying some other tinctures and stuff like that, I eventually found a tincture that worked. And I was just like, oh, that's what CBD is supposed to feel like. And I didn't know what it was supposed to feel like before. But once I felt it, I was like, that's different. That's unique. That's something special about, about this. And so the, ultimately, the problems that I was trying to solve were my health problems. You know, So in addition to solving my health problems, I realized that there's more people like me in this world that probably could benefit from cannabis if they only knew it existed in the way that I found it. Not from, you know, your buddy that you call and smoke and whatever else, but, you know, from a... Exactly. From, from if a, you get... If, if, exactly. So if, if somebody's passing you a joint at a party, which doesn't really happen anymore because no one's really sharing like that anymore, like that's not a natural form that new consumers are going to enter the market in. They might, they might feel a little bit of pressure from their friends, but people aren't, it's not, smoking isn't all of a sudden going to be cool, all, you know, overnight. We've just been, you know, with all the tobacco and all this other stuff, it's been so in the, in like dire straits of like an industry that we can't, I can't imagine smoking and vaping are all of a sudden going to be cool for the mass majority of people. Yeah, I'm not, this is not to preface though, I, I should have probably prefaced with, I'm not trying to bash people who smoke and vape. If they get their cannabis that way, I don't care. That is totally cool. It's just not the way I do it, but I have nothing against people who do do it that way. But at some point, I would imagine that a lot of people do, that do smoke and vape maybe do want to transition to a non-combustible format, something you would ingest instead. So that's where my company comes in. How did you get from the tincture that you made toward, hey, let's do this as a beverage? So. What happened was I realized that the tincture format was good for me as a personal kind of consumption device because I could just put it into water or whatever. But I eventually 
stumbled upon Can out in California. And I was like, oh, that is a company that's actually actively doing it in California. So I was like, let me just try to make seltzer here. Like, what does that entail? And so I decided to try to make seltzer and I found that it was actually very convenient also. So the tincture is really convenient in the sense that you can kind of just drop it anything, but nothing beats a RTD ready to drink, right? You just grab it out of the fridge, you can start drinking it. So for me, that was the ultimate form of convenience because I could just make a bunch of seltzer in advance, it, uh, infuse it all, and then put it in my fridge. That's nice. Okay, so that's that's it. Um, so where are you guys at currently with the stage of you know with, with Good Feels? We are we've been in market for about four and a half months now, uh, and we're in about twenty percent of the stores. So in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts specifically, yeah. So we're only in Massachusetts right now. Uh, we do have an out of state expansion plans, um, which we can get to under an NDA on a podcast, <laughs> podcast NDA. That might be a good title. Um, but basically <laughs> we'll embargo this until you're ready to go. Yeah. Embargo, <laughs> thank you. So, uh, no, we're looking at multiple States right now. We have partnerships that we've been working through, but you know, who knows what's going to happen with those. So for the most part, we're very much focused on Massachusetts because that's our hometown. That's where everybody lives. That's kind of where we've been born and raised. And so, uh, right now we have, like I said, about 20% of the market, which is about 45, 50 stores. And, uh, we're growing by five plus stores a month. Sometimes, you know, we've hit like eight or 10 a month because obviously we've only been in market for four and a half months and we've already hit 45. So we're averaging right now, I guess, 10 stores a month. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we are today. Great. Um, and you're expanding to another facility to, to be able to help support that manufacturing and storage and, and all those those items as well, correct? Yeah, exactly. So everybody thinks we're like this crazy powerhouse company that's just got it all made. No, no, no. This struggle is constant, constant struggles with everything we do, including our facility. Our facility is 2,000 square feet. Think about that. You've it's got du- a full bottle. Double, it's double my condo. <laughs> but listen, yeah, exactly. So imagine putting a bottling line, a labeling, uh, meaning labeling, Filling, you know, sanitizing, filling, capping, depalletizing it, repalletizing it with pallets and pallet jacks. Beyond that, also having bright tanks and like these giant bright tanks. So it's like, how can you even fit that all that in that little space? So basically, we are launching our second facility. So the second facility is just down the road from us, and it's almost eleven thousand square feet. So it's quite a bit bigger than what we're doing. So that's actually one of the reasons why we're fundraising right now is because we able to want to be able to fund that second facility. Well, that's the mission. And I equated you to the spindrift for cannabis seltzers because I love the one-year mission not having any artificial ingredients that are in there. It's just natural, not chemical natural flavors, but actual natural flavors. Um, and, you know, you're vegan and you're trying to, you know, like solar powered for the facilities and just trying to do things in a very community oriented way. And your story is incredible. And I wanted to share it with our audiences because I know you're fundraising right now, but it's a damn good seltzer. And whenever I'm in Massachusetts, I found you guys at Trade Roots. Um, Shout out to those guys, but like, yeah. it's just so damn good. And, you know, I will gladly detour my next route to the Adirondacks to, uh, to pick up some. So <laughs> if you are listening to this, please do the same. Um, but every crazy story, every entrepreneur starts from somewhere. And a lot of the influence that we have in our life is from our parents. So let's rewind. Let's rewind to the beginning. Sure. Um, tell me about your parents and your family growing up too. 
I know you have an older brother. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I literally, I, I'm a mutt in the most American way. Right. So that's actually a lot of my history is the fact that I've had identity crisis because I don't know who I am sometimes. Right. And so there's, and you know, that's the, that's on the surface. When you see LinkedIn posts, you're just like, Oh, this guy's got it made. There's so much behind that. Right. There's such a deeper person behind those LinkedIn posts. But ultimately when I was growing up, my mother had an accent, right? She had two accents. She had a Hispanic accent from Central America, and she had a Boston accent. It was a very interesting combination of an accent. So it's like you're speaking Spanish, but you're dropping your R's. It's like really weird. And my father is Irish Portuguese, right? So like from downtown, you know, from, from very much from Somerville, like grew up and, you know, grew up in the city, but also grew up in the country a little bit in Bill Ricca when it was a countryside. And eventually, basically the long, long story short of that is, um, they, div- they instilled upon me a few certain things, right? My, my mother. So I actually just told this story on LinkedIn, but I'm just going to repeat it real quick for your audience. But basically I remember one day I was at a friend's house and his older sister, it was just my, my neighborhood. We were playing, you know, games, whatever, probably playing wiffle ball and whatever. Her sister, sister was out baking herself in the sun, getting a tan. And she goes, I don't know how you do it. You say tan all year round. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm like nine or 10. Right. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I'm just, I don't know. I don't this know is the this way works. I was made. <laughs> yeah. I don't get it. Like I just, is my skin is just like, but again, I'm in, I'm in like white suburbia. So I'm like, I'm the guy who stands out. Right. So it's just like clear that like, Oh, and then of course, as the summer goes on, I get darker and darker and darker. And then I go into a cocoon in winter and then I white out again, you know, but basically the, um, when I was, when I was growing up, I did have this identity of like, I don't know who exactly I am. And so I didn't really fit in, but I also, I fit in, I did sports, but I also wasn't like part of like the in crowd who did the sports. And so I was always in the peripheral. I did have some friends, but it was just like, I was just like, it was all like my whole childhood was all big mess. Right. But in, in like, but I had love at home. You know what I mean? It wasn't like that mess. It was more of like social mess. You know what I mean? Because I played, I played football with a certain generation. And then when I got to high school, since of my age, my age was different. So I had to play with older kids and they were on a different team and I didn't know these kids. And so all of a sudden, like when I got to high school, like there was a big divide of like, I had friends here, but they're in eighth grade and now I'm in ninth grade and I've got these different group of people and they're not my friends yet. And it, we'll, it gets weird, man. We'll figure it out. You also had a very interesting dynamic with with your brother as well. Um, he was a few years older yeah. than you, right? Yeah. So I've always looked up to my brother because he's always been the strongest, most handsome dude. And I remember one time he said to me, he goes, he goes, you know, I got all the good genes. What happened to you? Right. He and said so that? that's a horrible so, thing to he was say. Like, but like brothers, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but like, I, it, I don't. So my philosophy is just on progress. I'm like, I've always put things behind me and just kind of kept on going because I had to ultimately as a kid, this sounds like horrible, but, and like, he would say it actually to me multiple times. Don't worry about it. I mean, he's my older brother, but like anytime we would get into a fight, he would, my dad would like say, don't hurt your brother. 
And as a little brother, I was just like trying to hurt him. You know what I mean? And then he'd go sit on my chest and I couldn't move because he was that much bigger and stronger than me. Right. And so, of course, he was the most handsome. He got, a, you know, he was the sports athlete. He had all the friends in the world. And I remember one time I was at a party, uh, you know, all the, you know, and I was at a party and there was girls there. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so new to me. And then some girl comes up to me and she goes, hey, who are you? I've never seen you before. I go, oh, I'm Rob's little brother. And she goes, don't ever say you're someone's little brother. You're you, dude. Like, that's not... That's like she. She was immediately. She just turned around. She's like, "Don't say that, dude. That's just like say who you. Wh- what's your name? You know That's what I mean? Very nice. But that was my her. identity. Yeah, that was my identity growing up. I was always Rob's little brother. What was the spark that had you overcome that and step into your to your own shoes? I remember you were sharing a little bit earlier. There was some things that you found that that really f- allowed you to kind of flex your legs and, and know who you are. Well, what happened to me, and you know, there's there's so many things that have happened that kind of shaped that. But, you know, I found, uh, computers. That was like a huge thing for me where I like, nobody was into computers. Like when I went to high school, there was no computer class. I mean, maybe there was a computer class. I don't remember it, but I didn't know how to do anything like besides like click a mouse. Maybe this is like Apple two days. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know the Oregon trail. I'm an old fart like that, but exactly. Oregon trail. That was my, that was my jam, you know? Um, but basically, once I found computers, I got my own identity because I just was super interested in programming things. I was just like, wait a second, I can make something that I can put it on a floppy disk and hand it to somebody and then they can play it or whatever. And so I was like, how do you make a video game? That's my first thing. I was like, how do you make a video game? Right. And I didn't, we didn't, we were, I was like, we didn't have money. So like, I couldn't even afford a computer. So I got like a Commodore 64, but it was like, 10 years past the Commodore 64 should have been out. There's like PC days and I was like programming on a Commodore, you know? Anyway, there's so many, there's so many levels to all that stuff. But when I found computers, I came into my own because it was something that was truly mine. My brother didn't know anything about computers. Nobody I knew knew anything about computers, but I was somehow compelled to continue going down this path to the point where when I got to, um, when I, when I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do because people literally told me, Oh, you're Rob's brother. You must be an idiot. <laughs> literally. Mm. I've had, I had teachers being like, Oh, you're Rob's brother. Well, my brother wasn't the most studious person, but he was the most handsome and he was the most outgoing and people loved him. And he was super athletic, but like, he didn't really study when I got through when I, so when I was coming up behind him, people were just like, you just must be dumb. Like your brother kind of thing. Right. So I thought I was dumb for like, all my all high school you adopted that identity i adopted because i didn't know i was like people are telling me i'm dumb so i guess i'm just dumb right not my, my brother's not dumb by by the way this is totally not a, you know i'm not trying to hang him out to dry he's totally not dumb he's just smart and like very other things he's smart in a bunch of different ways that i'm not social smart but not book smart wasn't his thing gotcha. yeah and so after i graduated i went to i was like i think i'm supposed to go to college right I didn't have any money. My parents didn't have any money. There was no money. So I was just like, how do I get to college? And I didn't have guidance. I had guidance, guidance culture. I think I met the person once. They didn't really care. Um, that actually story comes back to bite me like three years later. But when I get through high school, I was like, okay, how do I apply to a college? So I found like, like searched up a college probably on the internet because I had a computer then. Maybe I had a real computer at that point. Um, and I found a local community college. I went in there and I was like, Hey, I want to, I want to apply. They're like, here's an application. So I said, fantastic. Filled it all out, handed it back to them. 
And I was like, how do I know if it got in? And they were like, you're in. It's a community college. You don't like, there's no like acceptance criteria. You're in. And I'm like, just, oh, great. Just checking your pulse. Yep. Well, you've you filled out right. your form completely. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, cool. And so the first thing I did was I loaded up with every single computer class I could ever imagine. Right. Every single, I was like, humanities, I don't care. When was Give me this? computers was this like, all day. When was this? Like in the like 96? 96. Okay. Yeah. 96, I think. Okay. Yeah, because um, up into like it must have been ninety six. Yeah, because if I graduated ninety six, so I would have gone into college that that next you know uh, fall. But how did I that feel? Like you, you, did you did you like find your niche? Then you found your rail, and you're just like you take all the computer courses. Like, were you in with that? Like, did that like just? Yeah. Well, what, ha- what happened was I had to have a real frank conversation with my dad, being like, "Hey, I'm going to college. I don't have any money. Do you have any?" And then he was just like, fine, I'll pay for your first semester, but you're on your own after that kind of thing. And so I, so, so yeah, basically I was just like, I loaded up with computers and then eventually after taking like a programming class, like a proper one, I was like the, the teacher's helper. I was like, I'll help all the kids. Cause I knew it just something clicked. It just made a hundred percent sense to me on day one. I was like, I get this. And something, I don't know how my brain is wired, but it was just wired that computers could interface with it naturally, that I became like the helper in the class, helping all the other kids like learn this stuff too. And then after that, I, 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 I somehow won't get into the details of how I got a computer, but I got a computer and I didn't have to pay full price for it. I'll say it that way. <laughs> um, and so you again, this a, is, you solved a problem that needed to be solved. I am such a shady character, but I'm not. You know what I mean? I'm like an open book and transparent. It is the but I had to do what I had to do. A way to make it work, and I had to make it work. This is this is what I do. I make it happen. However, I, I can make it work. I make it work. So I got a computer and I started making websites. And eventually, I went door to door selling websites to so all like the local businesses. businesses. Okay. Yeah. I went down the street. I literally knocked on people's doors, whoever owned a business. And I said, I'll make a website for you. Here's my portfolio. And I made up, like, I printed out a bunch of things at, like, FedEx. It's funny Kinko's, you had to print out it was. material to show people websites. To, like, so. hand, be like, I make websites. Yeah. Hire me, you know? And I, um, after going through the community college experience, I was basically just like, okay, I'm a computer person. So like, I'm going to continue on this path. And I actually got, an, I got the award, which I think was given out. I think it's given out to one person in like a County or even, I don't think I want to say, I don't want to say state cause I'm not that smart, but I got this one award where it got a, I got a free ride to any state school, uh, any state school I wanted. So any UMass. Right. And I turned it down. <laughs> I went to WPI instead, which is Polytech, because it was a dedicated engineering school. UMass Amherst has a fantastic computer science program, and I know a few people who graduated from it who are super, super smart. I went to WPI, though, because I wanted to make sure that I was surrounded by the absolute smartest, smartest people I could, right? So this money, is actually... Money be damned, though. Like, you were just like, I'll take out loans, we'll make it work. Like, I found the vein I want to go on. I'm going to yeah. the, go, I'm gonna go to the best place I could possibly get in to go there yeah and so this. that actually that's that that's the the final part of the guidance counselors part that i started was simply that when i was applying to colleges after i was graduating from community college i had umass amherst no lock and then i was like mit wpi mm-hmm. no i again i'm not 
I didn't think like I couldn't get, if I didn't get into any of them, then well, I guess I could have gone to UMass Amherst, but I just didn't like cast my net that wide. I was like, it's either MIT or WPI. So I went to my guidance concert, you know, that I talked to three years before being like, Hey, I just need like a letter of recommendation that says like, I went to this school, basically I'll, I'll write it for you. And you just have to sign this thing. And she goes, you're not getting into MIT. And I go, what do you mean? I was like, I'm not asking for your opinion. And I'm a swore right there. Sorry. I'm not asking for your opinion because oh, I'm still fired up about these, this today. I have to mark these explicit once in a while. So don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just, I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm asking you to just sign this piece of paper that I wrote for you that says that I literally just went to this school and I'm like a decent kid. Nothing you know? if you just, just being like, I've done this. Yeah. And so leave it to be. Yep. She wasn't, yeah, she wasn't the best guidance counselor. We'll say it that way. Again, I went to, I mean, the school that I went to almost lost their accreditation for high school. Like that's, it's just like, yeah. Wow. So overcoming adversity, all those things stacked against me. I was just like, I was like, whatever, I'm going forward again. Right. It's all progress to me. Right. So I'm like, give me a piece of paper because it's, it's always that whole thing that people always say, how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. So I was just, I saw the vision of where I was going to be. I just had to do one thing at a time to get there, which included going through somebody like that person that was just like the most negative person in my life, probably at that point. That was just like, you're not, you can't do this. Like she wouldn't give me an appointment in the first time. And then I finally convinced her to get me an appointment just to like see her. Anyways, so moving on, I went to, eventually made it up to WPI. Uh, MIT required like SAT twos and all this other stuff. He had to write like a, per, like letters and, so I put all that stuff together, didn't get in, but I got into WPI. And that was a phenomenal experience. WPI was fantastic. One of the things that WPI always likes to instill upon people is that like there's, and this is going to sound super fucking snobby, so I apologize, but like it's, there's employees, there's managers, and there's leaders. We don't make managers here. We make leaders, right? That's not snobby. That's not snobby at all. From the very first day. Yeah. Like they were like, you were preparing you to do leadership. This is all leadership driven leadership qualities. Like we have projects and projects and projects all the time. It's very project driven. We have an IQP and MQP and all that stuff where it's in a humanities project. Also, that's all project based. You have, it, it was on you. It was independent. You know what I mean? Although sometimes for the, for the IQP, I was paired up with the team. Um, and we went to London. It was a whole thing. We worked it was for a whole London thing, Transport. But like that really, I mean, you making that pivot to go there to focus on your leadership skills, to damn be the free ride, I'll take out the loans because I really just love this so much. I mean, that's a big statement to you and your personality and the fact that you found yourself and you found yourself in this, in, in, in this, in this set. Yeah. Again, in my naivety, which I like to go into things pretty naive, which I also went into creating this company naive. Um, the, one of the things that I did was I walked into like the, 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 the place where you go when you like orient, not orientation, but like the office where they're talking about like, uh, FAFSA, whatever it's called. Like the, when you try to get like scholarships and all this student aid. Yeah. So I'm walking to the student and I was literally just like, do I qualify for anything? And they were like, no. Um, and, but I was like, I have to pay this bill. And it's like, again, this, even though it's a, it's back in the day in the nineties, like this was still like a $35,000 a year school. Right. And so I was like, I guess I'm taking out loans. Do you know, like, how do I do this? And they were like, here's like an application for a loan. Just fill it out. I filled it out. Had to ask my dad to like back it. 
And then they gave me the loan. I'm like, all right, I'm here. I'm in. I'm in WPI now, you know? Great. That's great. I, I, that's really nice of your father to be able to offer to do that. He obviously, I know, I think we shared on this a little earlier. He was very proud of you. Like the fact that you found your, you, you know, your path there and like was able to support you out through, through, through this journey that you've kind yeah, of becoming, exactly. of age, be, becoming Jason, as they would say. Yeah, um, becoming Jason, I, I, remember, I like that. I remember we touched a little before the interview. Um, when you graduated was not a great time for, for tech companies. Uh, and you ended up kind of just moving into entrepreneurship and starting one of your companies. At the end of all of this, and I was just like, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. There's so much turmoil. Like, it's just like, I can't make ends meet. I can barely make ends meet. And my buddy calls me one day and he's like, Hey, I'm moving to New York city. Do you want to move with me? And I said, if I can find a job, I'll go with you. Within two weeks, I had a job in New York City. Apparently, programmers were cool again. I didn't know. I didn't get the memo, right? So I get a job in New York City. And then I, New York City is one of those things where this is where I learned to say yes to everything. Because I was so, I had to say yes to everything. I said yes to every single moving job. I said yes to every single website. I said yes to everything after a dot-com bubble burst because I thought I was hot shit. I thought I was like, I'm a fancy programmer um, and I'm going to make tons of money because .com is insane and whatever. And this humbled you. And Well, yeah, it totally humbled me because I literally couldn't find a job again. And also WPI humbles you really quickly because I was definitely not the smartest programmer and soon quick enough. Because any programmer who first starts out, they're like, I can be the best programmer in the world someday until you meet somebody who's really crazy smart. And you're like, that's a different level. So, but having absorbed some of that person's energy, I was just like, I get that. And now let me try to figure out how, how I can, you know, use that to my advantage in my own personal life. Cutting, going forward to New York City, though, I'm saying yes to everything. So when I get there, I'm freelancing. I have a full-time job and I'm freelancing. I'm literally working 120 hours a week, nonstop, sleeping under desks, Ooh. pulling all-nighters, nonstop. I made tons of money. Here's the thing. Also, I was burning the candle at both ends. Um, I also happened to meet my wife at the same time, around that same time. How'd you have time to date? <laughs> that sounds grueling. And also being like the energy state to being like, I'm working my butt off, real job, part-time job, grueling, you know, grueling second job. And like, oh, let me just go out and schmooze. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I literally just told the story yesterday. Back around the same time where I did the dot-com bubble burst, I... Um, I started a bunch of companies. I started a nonprofit, actually. Uh, one of the nonprofits I started was a computer, co- uh, uh, bringing computers to Honduras, where my mother was born, the same beach town that my mother was born in Tela, Honduras. And I brought, I raised money and I got a bunch of computers. And I put them on a truck and I sent them to Honduras. I show up there a few months later and I am in- helping install the computers. My mother's with me. She's translating because I didn't speak Spanish because my I wasn't allowed in the house. It's, that's how American I am. It's like, we can't speak Spanish in the house. We have to speak English, like that style. So I don't really know Spanish that well. I'm actually trying to learn it again right now. But my wife knows better Spanish than I do, and I'll tell you exactly why in a second. So after, this, after that whole project is done, I go back, and I'm a professor, and I'm like doing all these things. A couple months go by, and... I get picked up by the like the local town newspaper, and then I send it to the Boston Globe. I'm like, Boston Globe, you've got to cover this story. I hound them for a few months. 
they eventually pick up my story in the Boston Globe. They read a whole profile on me and with pictures and everything. And um, I'm in New York City at this point. So I'm like, Boston Globe, I'm still in Massachusetts. But really, I was in New York City at that point. I already moved. My future wife's mom reads the story, hands it to her and says, do you know this kid? He's from the same hometown. And she's like, oh, I do know this person because a year before we were at a bar and we had met at what's called the Foggy Goggle on Boylston Street in Massachusetts, which no longer exists. Thank God. It was a dive. The fishbowl full of, you know, colored drink kind of place. And I gave her my number that night and she proceeded to lose it really, really shortly afterwards. But a year later, her mom reads an article She op- and she's like, I know this person. I actually, I met him like a year ago. And so then she proceeds to write an email to me and saying like, hey, we should chat about business because I actually spent two years in the Peace Corps in Guatemala. And since you were in Honduras doing nonprofit work, we should talk. Long story short, she later becomes my wife. Um, but that's like the short, that's the, the condensed version of it. But right, so you so weren't, you weren't hitting the bars. So was, yeah, you weren't hitting the bars, hanging out. You were, uh, you yeah. were, you were, you were hard at work away, and and uh, your future mother in law. I was doing working good, hard, doing the good deeds for you as exactly. well. Exactly. So, <laughs> all behind the scenes, and it all came full circle. Yeah, we well, um, good I like that. So my wife listens to this, Brian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was putting good energy out there. So I'm glad you said it. And I didn't have to say it. I was not going to the bars and clubs no. to my wife. I was not. I was yeah. totally just working the entire time. Yep. Um, working, volunteering, so, non-for-profits, helping, helping, yeah, helping, exactly. yeah, helping the world out there. Good, good, good man right there to set your da- uh, daughter up with. <laughs> so I, but I was in the vein of saying yes to everything. So I was working 120 hours a week. Like I said, like I was freelancing, doing full-time work nonstop. Actually, it's one of the things I tell my people in my company all the time. If you have a freelance job, you can be open with me and transparent because I honestly, if you're getting your day-to-day job done, I'm cool. Like do your job. And if you want to freelance on the side, cause you just want to free your brain up to do something different, do it. I have no problems with people freelancing in my company. I want to make that very clear to everybody because I did it myself. Right. And I know how weird that felt when I had to kind of be like, you kind of have to hide it. It's like, you don't, you feel like a little bit like ashamed because you're like, it depends like, on the, I'm, I'm it depends fully on the employed, culture. but I'm also, yeah, yeah. it depends on the culture. Exactly. So eventually rise to the ranks of New York city because I said yes to every single job I could take. I'd never turned down a single job. I was up late night launching things for MTV two for like all these crazy brands. We eventually started doing things for like Hanes and Keds and like all kinds of crazy brands. Right. So working in a true like ad agency, I built stuff for even before that for like AOL instant messenger components. Like I was building stuff for the, like all over the place in software, right? Uh, beyond that, really websites, campaigns and things like that. So I can't even remember all the, all the things that I did back then because it was literally 20 years ago now. But the, um, after that, I eventually started my next company, the big company. And so my business my future business partner at the time worked at the same ad agency. And he says, Hey, I get this idea for a company. We should partner. And I said, sure, whatever. I don't care. So we started, what was, what was the crux of the, the business name? Um, or the, um crux of so the business? we didn't have the name at the time. The name eventually became my bank tracker mm-hmm. and my bank Um, but we didn't have a name at the time. He saw an opportunity in the sense that we were working on some bank campaigns 
where like ing direct that used to have orange it was very big prominently orange and they were doing like a campaign where it was like five percent interest on your deposits right so you put a hundred dollars in at the end of the year you get a hundred you'd have a hundred and five dollars in the bank account right and so though like five percent apy that was fantastic right and so he figured out that he was like well what if we could create like a lead generation site to drive leads to these banks and so i was like all right great like i can figure that out it's easy i can program freaking anything you know and so we built a prototype and then eventually it started getting traction to the point where gmac financing which which what it was known before it was called ally bank came to us and said hey you've got all this great data on interest rates because we had been collecting data at that point, could you like sell the data to us, license it to us? And we're like, great, sure. Once we got that contract, we knew we were like, this might be something here. And this so then, business. so it was yeah, not just, not just referral income, but it was also back end income from data analytics subscriptions. Yeah. So we had a we were a SaaS company before it was a thing. We were selling data on a, a subscription to other banks, including Ally Bank, and that was our biggest one at the time. So. We go to our bosses at the time and say, hey, we're leaving. We'll gladly give you a month notice. Just heads up. We're going to start our own company. They proceeded to fire us immediately, walked us out the door. That's wow. just, it's just, it's just the way it works, man. Sometimes you kind of say, all right. So I get home. That's a I had a couple lesson, of drinks. Though. You don't, I mean, as much as you want to be a yeah. good person, you don't know necessarily owe your employer anything. Yeah. yeah. No, that's totally yeah. true. You don't. But we went to uh, Toad Hall in Soho, and we're, again, this is New York City terminology here. But like, and actually, you're Jersey, so whatever, you know. <laughs> well, we're we're at this place called Toad Hall, and having a couple of drinks, we walked to the Apple Store on Prince Street, bought a Mac Mini, and said, "This is going to be our server." It was like five hundred dollars. We like split it or something like that. I get home later that day, and I say, "Honey," and we had, we're already been married at this point. I said, "Honey, I've got great news." She goes, I got news for you too. All right, what's your news? So I say, I just quit my job and I'm going to start this new company with my business partner. And I'm leaving out names on purpose because I don't know who wants to be known as certain parts in these, in the role of my, you know, of my story. But basically I say, I'm quit, I quit my job and I'm going to start this new company. So we're not going to have income for a little bit, but it's okay. We've got a little bit of savings. She goes, oh, I got news for you too. I'm pregnant. And I'm like, Ooh, that's bad timing. Ouch. Um, but we'll there, figure there it is out, actually right? more motivation for you right there. <laughs> 100%. Anybody who has a child has a lot of motiva- motivation to make whatever in front of them work. Yeah. Um, you know, you take all sacrifices 100% on your shoulders at that yeah. point, and you You're say not, you'll do whatever it there's takes. There's no screwing around here. So you have this yeah. chip on your shoulder now, and uh, this uh, you know plus one coming along in, in mm-hmm. nine months. Let's scale this thing. Let's go. Yeah. So and I to be to be fully transparent, yeah. I always have a chip on my shoulder. I've always had it oh, just because audience, of my upbringing. You were think, just heard the story. It's just yeah, like the, the audience knows that very well. Yeah. <laughs> I have. I think any entrepreneur should have a chip on their shoulder because that's what, what's going to get you up in the morning to, and drive you to the next place, right? What's going to be the thing that gets you t- to make progress on something? It's because there's a little evil chip on your shoulder saying like, you can't it do it. It could be a benevolent chip. It. it could be, I want to make the world a better yeah. place, but we have to find our motivation someplace now, don't we? Now, right. Don't we? Oh, totally. So totally, I know totally. you wore it. My chip of, is different. 
I know, I know your chip is different. I know you wore a number of different hats at the company, but like it got to a point that like you were just like stressed beyond belief being here. Like you were yeah. CEO for a while, like you were running the company, and then like mm-hmm. there were some changes, whatever else. Like, you know, like what was that like kind of like being on your own in like this larger tech firm? And then kind of, you know, what kind of led you to 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 move on and exit it? Um the tech firm being the agency or being my bank tracker? My bank tracker. Yeah. So basically banking isn't sexy. It's like the least sexy thing in the world. Right. So it's like, we were always looking to do other things because we were just like, it's fun and it's working and we're generating revenue and we're paying ourselves pretty nicely. So like, let's just keep on doing it. But like, what else is there, you know, in life? And so we started an ad agency at the same time. So we were doing the same stuff we were doing before, but for like more like software driven, we were developing like the first iPhone apps and stuff like that that were out there. We built many, many apps. We built a few unicorns actually um, that you're probably familiar with. For instance, some of our clients for the ad agency, which we owned, this is not the, someone else's work. And again, we didn't want to be, create an ad agency. We just were so bored with my bank tracker. We were like, we got to do something else. So we ended up creating apps, iOS apps and Android apps and all this other stuff. But we were created for like, for like uh, Christie's Auction House, right? We did apps for Nutrisystem. There's an app still live today that's 10 years old at this point probably from Nutrisystem called Numi. So anybody who's on the Nutrisystem program and uses this Numi app, I built that, right? Or my company built that. Um, we built Stash Invest, which has like over 5 million users at this point. Um, and you know, it's an investing hat, like, you know, a competitor to like Robinhood and um, a number of other ones. I, I can't even remember them all again. Like it's, it's ancient history to me because I'm always moving forward that it's just like hard to remember sometimes like who, who these companies are. But so after going through all that process, we had two companies, we had three people running it. So we eventually decided, can any day you walk in, I would say, Hey, how is this project going? And the person would be like, yeah, great. Cool. I'll start working on it. And my other business partner would come in the next day and be like, Hey, can you work on this? And the person would be like, Oh, uh, Jason told me to work on this. Do you want me to work on this now? And like, everybody was confused who their boss was. You know what I mean? So we decided to split the companies. That's when I became CEO of my bank tracker and my other business partner became CEO of the agency. And the third partner was my uh, creative director underneath me in my org. And so we're building this company up. We're doing gangbusters, right? We're like, we're, it's advertising, it's media, it's lead generation. It's like all that stuff. It's still not the most sexy thing in the world, but you can clearly see where the margin is. And as long as we're expanding our margins, like everybody's happy, right? So we get to the point where we're doing FinCon 2019, 2018, 2019, something like that. And we get approached by a few people about, getting acquired and we're like sure we can do that i mean it's kind of run its course i've been doing it for 10 years at this point like it's probably good and so we go through that process and you know i'm 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 asking a few people like how you know to help out a little bit but i'm driving this whole process right it's like a practically another full-time job because in the process of doing it we ended up selling to a publicly traded company which the amount of scrutiny that they're putting on this is kind of insane so 
during that process. And God forbid you hire like an external auditor, like a, a deal company to help facilitate the transaction. Well, oh, no, we, and, you're like, I'm going to learn something new here today. And how to no, I don't want to, I don't want to mislead that. We did have a deal company. And the reason why was because a lot of the financial stuff that they were asking for, I definitely could have prepared on my own. We actually used a really incredible firm. So during the process of selling, and a lot of the burden is on me at this point because I was the CEO. Um, my buddy comes to me. He's like, hey, I'm going on this trip to Peru. I want to do the Inca Trail. Will you come with me? He invites 10 people on an email thread. And everybody says no. And I'm the yes guy. So I say, I'll do it. So I immediately start like figuring out and he's like, he's like a mini Indiana Jones, right? He's just like that adventure dude. So he's like super into it. He's like planning things with me. He's like psyched that I'm coming. And I'm like, I'm psyched too. Cause I've never been to Peru before. And as we're going through all of this, I ended up like hyperextending my knee on a trampoline at my kid's birthday. Of all things, you're 12,500 feet on the Inca trail. And it's a kid's birthday that does you in. Yeah. So before I go to the Inca trail, I get injured. And I say to him, I don't know if I can make this trip, but I'll try. And so we end up going, I end up going. We get there, but I have knee sleeves, like weightlifter knee sleeves on because I'm afraid of my left knee giving out. So early in the morning on the second day of the Inca Trail is a place where you summit. Uh, it's called Dead Woman's Pass. It's like, yeah, like 12,000, 13,000 feet or something like that. Maybe even 14,000, actually, if I recall yep. correctly. And it is the hardest day, they say, of the trail. So I'm stuffing coca leaves in my mouth. I'm like chewing because altitude sickness too, but it gives you tons of energy. I'm ch I'm chewing a bunch of coca leaves, sprinting up this mountain practically because I'm like I just want to make it because this is the hardest step, and there's more there's more climbing later, but like this is the real big one. So literally, I get up the mountain so fast it takes the rest of the team that I'm with another like hour and a half, two hours to meet me up there, right? Because also it's like a you know these hikes are like eight hour plus hikes, so. I get up there and I'm waiting and I'm just so happy I made it to the top that I simply just say, I just sit and I meditate and I just take it all in. And it was a fantastic time. What ends up happening though, is on the way down, I was going a little bit slower. And so I was really worried about my knee. We get to base camp and I, and I, I pass out from exhaustion, wake up the next day and my jaw is locked shut. I couldn't open it. And I was like, oh, this is not good. And so I could only open it like a half an inch. So I proceeded to be basically on a liquid diet for the rest of that trip to the point where when I got home from the trip, I started seeing doctors and dentists and all these other crazy people to be able to figure out how to open my jaw again to the point where they were injecting like, I think, ozone, O3 into my skull, into my jaw to be able to release the inflammation and pressure that was building up. And it, but they're treating everybody you talk to in the traditional medical field was treating the, um, the after effect, right? They weren't treating the root cause, right? I was actually just gonna, I was thinking that I'm like, you're, you're definitely treating the symptom, not the, uh, not the cause. Yeah. And so since they were treating the symptom, I didn't really get any relief. It's kind of like, yeah, I got a little bit and it was okay. It didn't hurt as much, but I still couldn't really use my mouth that well, you know? And I end up, um, um, the see, simplest way to say this is I end up discovering cannabis again. That's literally the start of that journey where I was just like, like many people who have a medical issue, 
they eventually have to figure out alternatives sometime, right? Because you're just like, I don't know what to do, right? Because what are the top three reasons people use cannabis, right? It's sleep, pain management, sometimes chronic pain management, and anxiety and PTSD and stuff like that. And so for me, I just, my root cause was stress. Because I'm sure this affected everything. Like you're under a huge amount of stress at work trying to get through that sale. You're, you know, you have a family. Um, and then also like, you can't, you, you can't eat and like live like a normal life, you know, like, and, and, you know, like, and I, and I made this in the nice, like, you love to talk, you're a communicator, like you're a huge presence on LinkedIn. You love doing that. And like, that just got to take something away from you that you would look for anything, uh, to be able to, to find this. Was there anybody that introduced you to cannabis or was this kind of like your own curiosity that spun up and being like, let me, let me figure out what's, yeah. what's here. I, I think it was the it was a podcast that triggered this because i was looking and i was searching and i was trying to figure out because i was like this cbd stuff is snake oil like i don't get it didn't it didn't affect me like i don't get it like i tried it again it didn't really work i was like there's got to be a better solution out there because you got it like the, the high quality stuff at the gas station right oh yeah the highest premium grade gas station cbd i could find um so we so I, I was listening to a podcast and somebody had mentioned a CBD brand that was doing something different. So I was like, maybe what what's this all about? They were using an emulsifier with a THC to make it water compatible. And I was just like, that's interesting and that's novel, that's new. And they were using guajilla extract, which is the sap of like the guajilla tree. And it's a popular emulsifier that's used in still in beverages today, although it's not as fast acting and it's not as the particle size doesn't really get as low. Now that I know all these things and the science of it, like I understand a lot better. You can only get it to like 150, 200 nanometers. You can't go below 100 nanometers, which means that every beverage you put out like what well, extra is cloudy. Um, so there, so I, I saw that ingredient. I reverse engineered a ton of uh, uh, their formula. And then I was like, oh, there's another product in the Massachusetts market that's a beverage. I'm like, what's that all about? So I reverse introduced their, their formula. They were also using guajilla extract, I found out. Got some guajilla extract and started making some emulsions. And I was like, maybe there is something to this. And so basically from that CBD journey, I eventually started doing home grows. I got a rosin press. I got like, you know, I was doing ice water hash at some point. I got a freeze dryer, like the whole nine. I love how you just like literally just, you dive in like big time Deep dives deep dives yeah. i don't I, I i i rip apart every shred of it until i understand it and then i can take it a higher level position i just go super deep because if i don't understand it i don't know how to prescribe it to other people and prescribe not in a medical sense but more in like just educational sense you're not going to stand on the mountaintop unless you know something about about, about what you're 100 i can't cheer something on unless i understand it 100 so this was helping you this was relieving your jaw tension like your own tinctures were giving you relief to the ailment that that you wanted when did the idea of you know let's maybe make a company out of this like when did that spark kind of hit uh it hit abruptly when i got laid off <laughs> i um so after i sold the company there was a difference of opinion of how to run the company afterwards and i was the ceo so somebody had to go and not the not the publicly traded company was not about to leave it was me unfortunately so in january of 2020 um although i'd gone through the experience of creating my own cbd products and 
you know, reverse, reverse engineering formulations, et cetera. Um, I got laid off and then eventually I, 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 I came to the realization that I was just like, maybe this is my next thing. Right. So I started looking into a deep dive and then February, 2020, March, 2020 rolls around. And then I'm suddenly panicking about toilet paper. Um, I, I, I was just like everybody else in the world. I was like, how do I get toilet paper? I want more toilet paper. I got a bum to wipe. So I eventually end up putting it on pause for a little bit until I was, I felt secure as if my family was secure. And I was like, we're going to be okay. And then I was just like, well, let me look into this again. So I, I eventually started again, while this is all during COVID, this is like a COVID, COVID hobby of mine because I literally was experimenting still. And that's, this is where I learned how to make seltzer. This is where I learned how to um, infuse it, whether it was going to infuse an entire keg or individual bottle. That's where I start building a bottling machine to be able to actually bottle the individual seltzers, right? So all that stuff happened during COVID because what else was I going to do, right? Yeah, the family was secure at that point, but I also couldn't go outside and like, I couldn't go to the, you know, where I wanted to go. So I started just building things at home. One, one thing I have a question for you is like, for somebody who's a very detail-oriented person who wants to know every nuance of things before they get in there, but also at the same time, like you went to WPI, like we're training you to be the leader here, not the doer, not the manager. How do you juggle between those two traits, you know, as you're, as you're growing this business? Wow. That is a great question. I have never thought of it from that perspective. Um, I, on the leadership side, it's almost as what I said earlier, I have a clear vision. And in my case, I see good feels bottles or any cannabis seltzer in reality, but I see our products on a bar. I can't get this vision out of my head. My old haunt in Brooklyn, there's a good feels bottle on that bar or on a tap and people are enjoying it in a bar. So whatever steps I take to get there, it's always in that direction, right? And I know there's a lot of regulations and a lot of things have to change up until that point. But that vision is very clear in my head. So I'm taking those small steps to be able to get to that place. So that's where I see that, that part of it going. As far as the details go, the details, sometimes I do overshare because I also don't want anybody in the dark. I'm a transparent person. I want to make sure that everybody understands. And that's why one of the core things about being a leader is to recruit people into your company, you have to have that strong vision. And you have to have, if you can't convince another person to work with you, like you have to, you maybe they're the wrong person you're talking to, but you have to reformulate your vision maybe or reformulate the way you're speaking to it because it's not clear. And so every job post we put out, we get like 150 applicants for. So something in Goodfields is, is definitely tuned into kind of what people are, uh, what people love. And so communication obviously is a big part of that. And obviously our marketing team is plays a big role in that specifically Matthew. Um, so, you know, there's, that's, there's that. In, but with in a small a, company, a like at the end of the day, like you got to start it up too. So like you're in there doing the programming, getting the bottling run. And I know that was actually one of the, you know, like there's a kind of a neat story and, uh, about the bottles, like mm. in your bottling run and getting that stood up that you're like, when you tried to step away, I know you initially hired a consultant to kind of help kind of like 
take some of this load off your plate and like, let me just yeah. work on the business and not work in the business. And you had some interesting stories from that. Some, some maybe lessons we could, we could, we could pass along to other, sure. seltzer, other seltzer manufacturers. I mean, it's, it's, it's trust, but verify. So basically our bottling machine is as the kids say, OP, right. It's overpowered. So we have a crazy bottling machine and everything about our facility is overpowered. It's just in a tiny, tiny space. So we're able to do tons and tons of bottles, but moving the bottles around is actually the big problem right now. But initially when I hired a, when I, cause I didn't know anything about beverage equipment. So I was just like, let me hire a consultant and he'll sort all this stuff up. So when I hired him, it's a trust thing. It's just like, Hey, you know how to do all this stuff. Right. And he's like, I got it. Don't worry about it. I'm like, fantastic. I don't have to think about it anymore. It's out of sight, out of mind. But then a month goes by and I'm like, how's it going? And another month goes by and he's on retainer too. So I'm like paying a retainer fee. Plus I'm paying like, you know, all these other costs attached to it. So basically I end up finding out that we got this crazy machine and we spent all this money and all this time isolating and finding this one thing. And it didn't come with the parts it needed specifically because we have a stubby bottle, which is not a long neck. It's a very it's like different the, it's format. Like the red bottles. Exactly. It's a red stripe bottle, which means it's shorter. It's a little, it's called stubby for a reason. It's actually a little fat, a little fat boy. So basically the machine itself was equipped for long necks and not for stubby bottles. Our consultant was supposed to send bottles to the um, beverage manufacturer, equipment manufacturer, and then they were supposed to outfit it with the proper equipment. But beyond that, even the, even if there was even missing parts from the equipment manufacturer, to be honest, though, there was just missing things, right? So like, not knowing anything about beverage equipment was a huge issue, but you kind of just roll with it. You know, you just kind of move on with hindsight. How would you prevent that problem in the future? Like just better questions, uh, in interviewing somebody like, um, the way, well, it's hard to know to how to do it. If you don't know, I would probably implement, implement a third party system. If, in that case, if I don't know something at all, I might implement just a third person just to make sure that it actually is getting done the way they do it. Second set of eyes. They, second set of eyes. Just about if they want to battle something out and they, because it would have been very easy to find somebody else and said that machine for in your space, that's crazy. You know, like, and it would have been like a different conversation. Whereas I'm just like, okay, that does this many bottles an hour. That's all I care about. You know, yep. I wasn't thinking about footprint. I wasn't thinking about how massive the machine was. Uh, even my architect was like, this kind of looks big. Are you sure? He's like, I was like, that's what the consultant said. He said it would fit. Okay. We'll draw it in. And you had to figure it out. So you ended up, you ended up making like some modifications yourself to that machine. Like you're just like, I, I need to figure this out now. I've outsourced this enough. I just need to get in here and put my, like stop being the leader and delegating and like literally putting on my do hat and get in there and fix it. Yeah. So uh, specific issues, like just the bottle size, right? Since it's a wider bottle, like it won't fit in certain cogs in the machine, right? Certain gears and stuff like that. So I went out and I started 3D printing a bunch of things to be able to make makeshift parts to be able to make it fit. We didn't end up using any of that. My head brewer is totally just like, that's not really what you're supposed to do. So you should probably do it like this. And I was like, all right, fine. The problem is we're working with an Italian bottling machine. And in Italy, it takes a minute to get anything done. I'll say that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> it takes a minute or more to get anything months. done in Italy. Yeah. So months, months later, we finally get the right parts in. Yeah. It took a long time to get the right parts. 
And that bottling machine now, doesn't that exist in your basement as like a, as a tester? Oh, no, you mean talking about the original one? Yeah. Yes. So the original one that I built from scratch, that still exists in my basement as a, as a dusty old relic now because I've been so busy at the office that I haven't been able to like do anything with it. But, it, you know, it, 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 it ran its course. Um, and, you know, it had little bugs. For sample runs or whatever else or testers. Yeah, exactly. Or- you know, we'll put it in the museum someday. The uh, exactly. you know, history of cannabis museum. So I was talking about the, the the big machine that's in the facility right now is the Italian one. That's a crazy story, and I guess there's really no possible way of knowing that what it is. But you have to know what it is before you know what it is. Um, um, but this is the naivety. You had a Massachusetts has. I mean, like as in all states, though, had some really interesting uh, laws related toward you know being able to find your first property. Um, which the uh, the HCA, the host community uh, agreement process. Um, it's the biggest struggle I hear from most entrepreneurs in the space of like actually finding a property that's cool with cannabis. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Basically the landlords have a stranglehold on the, on, on the HCA process. And the reason why it comes back to the landlords and uh, one of my advisors, David, David Rabinovitz, he actually wrote a really great story about this on cannabis.net. But and it was years ago now. But basically, and it's 100% true, probably still to this day, but landlords can have complete control of the process because the state gave the towns the right to oversee the HCA process, which, which just got now reversed. So now the CCC has, a, has to review them all. Before, they didn't know if they had, CCC didn't know if they had the right to review them, but now it's like official Governor Baker signed that and says, oh, actually, no, well, we, we can review it. So when you go through the HCA process, you have to find a place a place, right? The place has have typically been designated industrial parks. So any landlord who has an industrial park is now all of a sudden uh, can charge whatever they want, right? Because everybody thinks big dollar signs when they think of cannabis. And so one time I saw this 9,000 square foot space for $7.50, I think it was per square foot. I go there, I review it. I took my architect, took my builder. We looked at the whole place. We're like, all right, this is doable. We can make it work. Uh, which is a little bit of construction, demolition, et cetera. And then I said, hey, just to be fully transparent, we're in cannabis. He goes, okay, well, I'll just ask, this is to the broker, I'll just ask the owner if he's okay with that. Because some owners aren't. And I wanted to be transparent. I didn't want to just sneak in behind and be like, hey, by the way, I need your I need your sign off on the fact that we're doing cannabis now in your, in your building. He comes back. He said, yeah, the, he, the landlord, uh, the owner is fine. Uh, it's $15 a script with them. And I was just like, wait a second, you advertised it like seven fifty or eight, I think it was. You're doubling it on me? Yep. Sorry. He wants fifteen. Oh, okay, never mind. So we moved on. So that's what I mean by the landlords have a stranglehold on the HCA process because you need to get the landlords because you can't even get an HCA until you have space. Yep. Although that's been challenged at least once. So now that, so basically I was relegated to these really random spots all around Massachusetts that are like, are just not great. And so I eventually stumbled upon our future space, which we're in now. And the landlord just didn't, he didn't, he was just like, whatever, it's whatever's fair is fair. So our first space being 2000 square feet. Just pay on time. um, Don't make a mess. (laughs) Yeah. He was just like, yeah. And so don't, don't bother your other tenants. You know, he was, just, he, I think one of the other tenants was like, does it smell? Cause we had a smell problem because one of the other facilities down the street got in in the medical days 
and there was no smell issue. There was no smell ordinance or anything like that. So they just stink up the place. Even today, it's like stinky outside. But you're de- you're dealing with distillate, so like it's cleaned. Yeah. yeah, it's already processed. So like that's the whole. That was the other thing we had to compromise with. So we can't do any extraction or facility right now. We only take in, you know, the pure highest tack distillate we can, and then process it on top of that. The um, but we ended up finding a really great landlord and he was charging a fair rate. So we went with him. That's literally all it was. And it happened to be in my hometown, which Don't is figure. preferable because as much as I'm an aggressive kind of uh, go-getter, I'm also very lazy when I'm like, I don't want to drive more than 10 minutes to work. I mean, but go figure though, being a good business person and giving somebody a fair price and, you know, like that goes a long way. It does. And, and that was your second lesson of giving someone a heads up on something and them screwing you. So I hope that's not yeah. a bad lesson right there as well. Um, so that was the 2000 square foot facility that you found through that, mm-hmm. through that landlord. You're currently going through building out a second location right now, yep. uh, which is much, much, much bigger and you're fundraising right now. Can you tell us some of the struggles that you've gone through w- with that? Sure. Uh, their struggles are just part of your life when in your friend, the cannabis industry, especially as a founder. Um, that's the biggest takeaway from all of this is get, get, be prepared to be disappointed constantly. Um, but with every block that comes in front of you, you can go around it, you can go over it or you can go through it. (laughs) That's what I tell my staff. Even like there's a block, like if anytime there's something in your way, there's a way around. You just have to find. It doesn't matter how big the wall is. There's a way to scale it. The obstacle. So, and in the HCA, well, so the HCA process was quite interesting in the other town as well. So the other town is in Holliston. They basically said we don't agree with any of this. We agree with everything you're telling us because I was like, there's no reason why we should pay an impact fee because you have to tell us like what the impact is, and they're like, well, we can't tell you. Like, but like that doesn't make any sense. Why am I paying a fat three, a flat three percent on all my gross revenue? without having any receipts of how you spend the money gross revenue yeah not net. not it's top line they're taking it right off the top line three percent and so i said i was like i, I get all, made all these wonderful cases they were like i agree sounds great we're not going to do anything and the reason why is because they knew that these laws are changing and so they're like we're not going to negotiate this with you today you're just going to sign it as is because we know we're going to have to renegotiate with you in the future. I was like, all right, fair. It's not like we're launching tomorrow anyways. We got a year out, whatever, from this for this facility potentially, depending on the fundraise, which is a second issue. But the way that it's structured today was, um, and actually I stumbled upon this property. That's another thing. So the property that we're in today was a Craigslist job. That was literally Craigslist. No broker could find this spot for me. I literally... It, through a chain of three different phone calls, eventually got to it. The second space. I love how Craigslist is still kicking. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> it, but it, but it, like, I don't. You just have to. It's all the hustle. It's you got to grind every day to find these opportunities, right? So the second facility was very similar. I saw on Facebook that there was an uh, the town the select board the same door, board that said they're just gonna you just you have to accept you have to bite it and basically take the three percent because we're not going to give you the hca unless you agree to three percent they denied a previous tenant because they were growing since they were cultivation they were like we don't believe you can do the smell and i'm like i don't have a smell i have an engineer certificate that says clearly there's no smell with my process 
I literally had to go out and spend thousands of dollars on this engineering certificate to be able to get this thing. And that's for the existing town. The second town, I just handed in that same certificate and it paid off. And they were like, yeah, that makes sense. So what did dollar cost the old, that one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so two for one. So I, um, so I presented that data to them and they were like, Oh, okay, we can do business with you. You don't smell. That's much more acceptable to us. And so the other, the former tenant, um, had to renege on their lease and I took over their lease basically. Okay. And ended up, um, you know, getting a pretty de- decent spot, which also happened to be my former gym. It was a CrossFit gym before. So I knew the space intimately. Um, that's when, when it came up, I'm like, that's perfect for me. You it's a big open a box. painful experiences in that building. So <laughs> exactly. from, from CrossFit Let's to running that. a cannabis business now. <laughs> yep. Um, and you had mentioned in there that you're, you're, you know, to help fund some of the growth and, you know, you're expanding, you know, uh, you know, at least in Massachusetts and then potentially to, to further States, you guys are going through a funding route right now too. Yeah. Um, if anybody is interested in that or like, what does that even look like, you know, for like, Hey, I got a non-smelling beverage company. Um, cause seltzers are kind of the rage nowadays, just like in the, um, just like in the alcohol and Bev market, seltzers are the rage. Um, what, yep. is, what are some of the struggles with that? So the struggles with that are numerous. And the reason why is because ever since there was this talk of recession, everybody tightened up their wallets, right? Everybody was just like, Oh, where, I don't know. I want to see how this plays out first. Right. Everybody's like, I want to see how this plays out. So again, people, be prepared. If you're doing a fundraise, be prepared for rejection, constant, constant rejection. I've had lots of phone calls. Some of them fantastic phone calls that didn't go anywhere. Some of them not so great calls that went somewhere. And then some calls that were literally just, I'll give you this money today. I'll wire it tomorrow. Thank you. And I'm like, okay, great. I literally didn't have to present. Just thank you. Um, so, but again, some people just know of what's in the opportunity today to get in at this level is like, it's un, it's like you're not going to get that many chances because now it's just it's all happening and you got to get on this rocket ship now or you get away from my series a you know so for our opportunity in front of us today we put in a um so just to give it the simple numbers right here it's a 50 million dollar valuation cap on a safe note with a 20 percent discount raising 1.5 million. So I'm basically giving up 10% of the company because I own it all right now, right? Um, I'm giving up 10% of the company for $1.5 million in exchange. And what that gets ultimately is a little bit of run rate as well as uh, building the second facility, right? And we've closed a bunch so far, but we're still, we still have ways to go, right? So I'm looking at, you know, the the opportunity today to get in a brand new category or a very nascent category, I should say, because it's not quite brand new anymore, very early stage category and the footsteps of something that's going to be very large is an opportunity that like, you know, when I tell people that I see beverages in a bar, like cannabis infused beverages specifically in a bar, or like you can just buy like a 12 pack at the grocery store or whatever, people think I'm crazy. But they don't realize what we all realize in the industry is that this is just a normal thing for a lot of people in this world and overregulation of it. Although, you know, save the children, think of the kids, all these other things, you get a lot of that. And you're like, yes, I get that. But like, we don't have to go into the whole alcohol versus cannabis thing because they're not the same. But in many ways, they're regulated. They could be regulated similarly. 
the and that's actually one of the things I always I've been going off on lately is everybody's like they should be you know it's just the same thing as alcohol just do it that way I'm like no it's cannabis not. is not the same thing as it alcohol it is not it is very far and from alcohol is so much more dangerous like and okay. like there's no but again, benefits to alcohol except for possibly disinfecting zero. wounds um yeah. <laughs> so anyways the fundraise uh we're doing a 1.5 million dollar raise we're hoping to close in the next few months and uh then again give me a little bit of headspace to get back to work to be able to really continue to grow this company put some money towards marketing you've been self-funded throughout like from your from your exits from 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 prior exactly exactly and so you know i'll continue to extend the company money if it needs it but i think we're okay assuming we can continue to close the money that we've been closing and then, but I still have plenty of runway if I wanted to continue to self fund. What makes Goodfields different from a lot of the competitors that are popping up out there? And I wanted, I want the audience to hear it from you because I like the story so much. That's why I wanted to have you on the show and not the plethora of other ones. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways to answer that. I would, I guess, probably what I would say is first and foremost, one of the things we always love to lead with is that. Happy people make better beverages, right? We treat our employees top, top, right? We pay a living wage. We give great benefits, you know, healthcare, all that stuff, right? Um, but at the end of the day, we taste really, really great. Weed Maps named us uh, top, one of the top beverages in summer 2022, right? Because we taste so good. Because we're not just focused on the first sale. We're not focused on adding, you know, someone going to the store and buying one drink. Anybody can do that. Getting them to buy tall packs repeatedly every weekend, that's where we want to be. And so that's really kind of what makes us different is that we're really focused on making sure that we have always the best tasting beverage out there. Um, but beyond that, there's also the functional thing. So basically, you know, think about your can, sleek, 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 can, 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 bottle. Oh, what's that? Why does all the cans have these plastic little dongles on them, right? That you have to like rip off or manipulate, right? Ours are CR certified. The cap itself is CR certified, child resistant. So all you need is a bottle open, you crack it open, you drink it. You look like a normal person at a party. Um, things like that. Like we also have a separate product format, right? So we're not just the ready to drink 12 ounce version. We're actually the, um, the beverage enhancer is also extremely important to our portfolio simply because that's the on the go, go one. That's the, that's the one that I took to me, took with me to Puerto Rico to infuse pina coladas, right? Yep. So easy to, easy to have in your pocket. Exactly. Wish it was, exactly. Your, wish it was yours. It's not, but <laughs> no, I know I get it. But so the, the format is super, super simple, but again, it's all about making sure it tastes good. So we have a flavorless version, which not that many people do, right? Actually, I don't think anybody does. I think there's one company that's kind of close, but not really, but the flavorless one goes into anything. People put it in their coffee and their tea. Uh, people have gone so far to put it in their breakfast cereal, right? It can infuse anything. So, they're like that one is the extreme like that makes me so happy because when i get people contacting me which they do frequently but like how great they love their uh, love our products flavorless especially comes up in uh, a lot because you're just like i can put in anything and it's, it just goes you can infuse anything yeah. you can actually buy a pumpkin pie the actual spin drift and then just enjoy the natural just, flavors yeah the, exactly the if, you, if you don't like our seltzers natural yeah. flavors that are if there. you don't like our the taste of our seltzer or if you just don't want to drink a 12 ounce beverage before you go to bed or something like that just use the beverage enhancer and put it in a shot glass right yep. or put it in any drink that you want um but so that we're also a license holder so like, again, so the only other license holder in the market that is a beverage company is Levia and they've already been acquired. You can't literally invest in, in, uh, 
in Levia anymore. You can't go at that. You can't get on the floor with Levia. Yeah, you can still get on the floor with us. Was it Air or Ascend bought them? Exactly, Air. So, and it's a very, very young, young market, right? Uh, we also have like capacity. We can t- blow out a ton of bottles. Like I said, our machine is so overpowered right now. It's ridiculous. Um, but beyond that, we do tons of research one-on-ones. We get tons and tons of feedback from, um, you know, just these, these interviews that we do that we're treating it like a proper CPG company. We're not a cannabis company that's trying to act like a CPG company. We're a CPG company that actually has happens to have THC as an ingredient, right? Which isn't 100% true because we are a cannabis company. But at the same time, we're very much focused on making sure that we're always testing against consumers. We do seasonal beverages. We hold these seasonal parties where people we invite a bunch of people to come in to do taste tests. We just put up our fall seasonal Four different flavors got tested, and one we only picked out one winner. Tell me it wasn't pumpkin spice, now was it? No, no, no. no. Well, it wasn't. I'll tell you that, but I won't going to tell you exactly who, what it is yet. Not pumpkin spice, but basically, we, 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 you know, in that one alone, we had fifty plus, you know, people on that survey, and so like we're really dialing in exactly what makes a proper brand because I wouldn't want to be in cultivation, and retail is tough to be in as well. It's get in Massachusetts. It's getting a little bit tougher, I should say. There's more yeah. like a there's a few other things we can go through. That's I have a whole the, a set of opinions on the entire industry. Cultivation side, it's just like you know, I pick a I pu- I pick being becoming a brand for a very specific reason because I wanted to actually point on a shelf and be like, that's my product. I made that from nothing. Literally, I just started talking one day, and all of a sudden, that appeared two years later. The, the well, energy like that you later. have on this, Jason, is just infectious. And you know, I just I love all the elements that you have behind your business of trying to you know, treat your employees very well, be a good community member. Um, you know, everything that you make is actually 100% recyclable too. With the glass, it's, you know, it's highly recyclable. Mm-hmm. Now, we've discussed the business a lot. A few takeaway questions to close this interview out, and I appreciate your time, is when you're not doing the business, how do you manage through all the stress that you're dealing with? I, I just had to have this conversation with my team because I feel sometimes I'm available for everybody for all the time and I'm not ever available for myself. And I told the team today, I have to schedule, like, I'm going to do this portion of the morning is going to be dedicated to this, afternoon is dedicated to this, and, you know, lunchtime, uh, lunchtime beyond is dedicated to this. And so that is something that I'm actually working through right now. I used to be really great at it. One way I actually get relief, though, is working out. Like, my, my wife just finished a triathlon and I'm like, I'm going to do that. Like, I can't wait. So if I have these other ancillary kind of like things on the side that are keeping me like clears my head occasionally, whether that's working out or on a bike, I just did the pan mass challenge, 192 mile ride. And I saw your posts on that. It was pretty phenomenal. I mean, those endorphins are the best drug out there. As much as I love cannabis and a few other things, like nothing beats a throwing a kettlebell around a gym for me, but yeah, like just getting exercise and getting some clarity. That's what it is. You get your you get your clarity, you get your moment of peace, and you and you kind of can tackle that day. But um, yeah, I mean, again, it's just like if anybody invites me to do something, especially with physical things attached to it, I say yes. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. Sure, I suck at running. I'm awful at running. If you want me to go do a marathon tomorrow, I'd probably be like, hmm, could I actually do that? Assuming I didn't have an interview or a fundraising call or something like that, maybe I might actually take you up on that challenge. I've actually done that untrained before. I've run a marathon untrained. Oof, I've run the oof. 101st Boston Marathon as a bandit. And I, was, I couldn't walk for like two days after that. 
I mean, that's that's kind of impressive. Um, if when you say you suck at I'm running, yes I was man. like, I thought you sucked at running. Like I suck at running, being like, okay, well, we're down the street now. We could stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, those um, thoughts go through my head. Yeah, they go through everybody's head. I think, but you they don't go seem through like mine who knows too. how to stop, though, Jason. So that's a that's a good sign for an entrepreneur. Uh, my next question is, like, when it comes down to it, when you're facing a tough problem and a tough decision, right, what do you come back to as your North Star to help make the right decision? There's a few things. That's kind of a loaded question at the moment because um, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff. But I, I don't know. Sometimes I just look at myself in the mirror because I didn't always look at myself in the mirror. I was, always, I was you know, because I was Rob's little brother, right? So I never like knew who I was for the first, you know, 20 plus years of my life, practically, um, or like at least into my teens. And when I'm looking for guidance, sometimes I just stare at myself. I literally just like, what, like, who am I? What am I doing here? Why do I exist? Right. I have a lot of those deep self-reflective things because I mean, my, my wife calls me dramatic. So she, you know, with context, that's actually true. But I, if I'm looking for a true north and I'm, I'm actually looking for it, I first go introspective. And sometimes I won't speak for days to people. I will literally just, my, I'll be in my head. For, that's just, I'm an introvert in that sense where I'll just be in my head for hours, staring off in the distance. And my wife, wife will come by and snap and be like, dude, what are you doing? I'd be like, I'm here. I'm here. Because my brain will just take me to other dimensions. But assuming that I go down that path first, and I get that deep introspection, I've already thought through the process of that. I've already thought through the whole thing at this point. I, As a programmer, one of the things you always do is edge cases. You're always tra tracking down these edge cases. But what happens if a person puts, you know, input? What if a person, if you ask for a zip code and someone puts in a letter, right? All these stupid things like that. I get told from our CTO about our edge cases and how I don't pay attention to them enough. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like, that's been ingrained in me because I'm 20 plus year veteran of programming, maybe even 25 years now at this point. So like when I thought through an entire problem in a matter of hours where I'm just staring off into space and I come back to earth, and my son does this too, actually a lot. My daughter does this a little bit too. As they get older, they kind of stare off into space a lot, which I love because I call them space cadets. I say like, hey, come back to Earth. Now you're here. What did you discover? You know? But once I come back, I'm often, I often have thought through the whole thing at that point. And I'll just be like, this is how, this is how it's going to work. And then I'll have an answer to it. But not always. That is amazing, you know, from someone who grew up with some identity issues to just so very much have grown to trust your own analysis and your own self and that you have the way to be able to do that. And like, I think that kind of brings our story very full circle of, you know, young Jason growing up, not knowing who he was to now being very assured of himself and, and where he's going. So I like that. I like that a lot. Um, a few last very quick questions. Any cannabis founders or non-cannabis that you've modeled or inspire you that, that you really resonate with? Um, there are a few, I, I struggle with mentorship, um, because I often do go my own path and oftentimes I don't check with, with other people. Um, that is a, that is one of the things I probably should work on the, the first, the people that I've looked up to since 
I started my cannabis journey are, is David Rabinovitz, who's done a ton for social equity, as well as he's doing his own, his, his own stuff. And he's been working with me for, all, he was literally the first person I had a face-to-face conversation with in cannabis. Um, and then, I mean, that's a, that's a great one. I would say, I mean, I have non-cannabis advisors too, but like the, on the cannabis side, I'd say anybody who's getting up every morning and grinding, a, grinding it out and making it a, uh, making it kind of like they're currently anyways, their life's mission to be able to get this in front of as many people as possible, get consumers interested in, in cannabis and doing it all above board, meaning that they're not sending out like, and again, I'm not trying to knock anybody in the industry, but as far as people who I looked up, look up to, I don't look up to the people who are doing like HHCs, THCOs, like all the, all the, all the ones that are made chemically are in, in on a lab. Now, with that said, there are some exceptions to that. Like CBN is made in a lab. Anybody who's who's consuming CBN on the on the on the on any market, ninety nine point nine percent of that is actually made in a lab. I'm not sure if everybody knew that. So, you are those CBN sleep gummies that you're taking? Those are lab derived CBN. There's no like nobody's creating growing CBN plants. You know what I mean? CBG, no, that's natural, right? CBD, THC, those are all natural. Yeah. So basically, I like anybody who's getting up every morning and grinding it out and doing it in an ethical way and trying to move this forward. I look up to those people, and that's why I'm a big. Um, I applaud anybody who's doing that, and that's and I'll tell it, tell people right to their faces, or on LinkedIn or whatever that I applaud them because they're here and they're doing it, and I'm with you. It's a grind. It's a, every day. It's a grind. Um, I yeah. So and actually, that's probably like the last thing is like for someone who is admiring of you and wants to connect with you or good feels, or maybe wants to invest or help out or maybe become employed. Like what's the best way to connect with, you know, the company and, and, and yourself direct. Um, I would just email me. Um, I'm not really great at phone calls. Cold calls are just like not my thing. Not my thing. So when someone cold calls me, I'm just like, dude, I don't want to talk. I'm a programmer. I'm an introvert yeah. in that sense. Yeah. I know I sound extroverted right now. It's does it's nonsensical, but I go both ways. For, the, for this but last ninety I, minutes, we got you. But you're you're also on LinkedIn. <laughs> you're you're also on LinkedIn yeah. as well, and quite proficient up there. I really yeah. enjoy your content. Yeah, LinkedIn. Have. So it's just LinkedIn, just Jason Raposa, and then just Jason at getgoodfeels.com, and that's get as in G E T goodfeels.com. So some people yeah. just do the goodfeels.com and it's no, it's getgoodfeels.com. That that domain name's a premium and uh, we haven't been able to track the owner down still. Jason, I appreciate you taking the time to share your founder's journey today. I love kind of how it wrapped up to, to our conclusion today of you finding yourself and you trusting yourself and you making some amazing decisions and some an amazing company behind that as well. So thank you for being here. Like I'm a huge fan of yours and, and, and honestly, like good luck as you go for the fundraise and grow things out and try to make this industry in a better place. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey there. One quick thing before we go. If you've listened this far, you've likely got some value from the show. These episodes take a lot to produce. And all I'm asking for is some feedback. I hear this all the time and honestly, usually ignore it too. But reviews have a huge ROI for us podcasters, especially the smaller ones. Taking less than a minute to write a review and sharing with your friends, colleagues, and followers on social media would mean the world to us. Thank you. Lit Up Founders is a Lit Up Media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was edited by Anthony Margola and Brian Weber. 
mixed and mastered by Anthony Margola. Theme music, courtesy of Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and LinkedIn at litupmedia. Our email is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for sharing the journey.